Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with Stan Dostrupski of WFIU. And today we're going to explore the issue of whether Indiana should expand Medicaid coverage. We have three guests with us today. Two are in the studio. Indiana Hospital Association President Doug Leonard is here, and so is SPIA Professor Beth Kate. Also joining us for the first uh, 10 or 15 minutes of the program from Indianapolis is State Representative Tim Brown. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348, and you can join a live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So uh, thank you all for being here today. It's uh, quite an interesting and timely topic, and we're going to go right to uh, Representative Brown first. Um, Representative Brown, you have said that if, if Medicaid is going to be expanded, it should be done under the existing Healthy Indiana Plan and not the Affordable Care Act. Um, sort of explain your point of view on that. Well, we know the uh, Indiana Healthy Indiana Plan has been successful and also has some cost-sharing and individual responsibility components to it. One of the features is uh, a little bit of a cost-sharing of the premium as well as a power account, which is money that you direct how it's to be spent. And we have statistics that show that if even at $10 a month, that there's a 16% reduction in utilization of ER services. I have a question for you uh, regarding the, uh, the the money side of it. Uh, uh, getting aside the the long-term aspect of all of this, uh, we did a story a number of weeks ago with David Orentlicker, himself a former state representative, now uh, works studying health care policy. And his point to us was the state – since it could get money essentially for free from the federal government for the next three years to implement this Medicaid expansion would be silly not to just try it for three years because they're getting the money from the federal government. Um, what do you think of that as, as a sort of uh, game theory way of going about this? You know, see how it works since the federal government's paying for it, and then you can always opt out later. Well, having been a colleague of uh, Representative Dr. Ornlicker in the past, I guess I hate to respectfully disagree. Uh, the idea that the money from the federal government is free just bothers me immensely. It's like taking a dollar out of the right side of your pocket and a dollar out of the left side of your pocket, putting it together and say, I have three dollars. You know, you don't have three dollars, you still just have two dollars. It comes from taxpayers, and it's a burden to our economy. And then secondly, to say, okay, after three years, we're going to cut a program that people have you look at the problems we have at the federal level on trimming expenditures and programs that have been in place, we have the same sort of dynamics and problems at the state level. I think we need to be more prudent as opposed to say, we're going to give you something, and in three years, we'll probably take it away. Um, uh, to follow up on that, uh, Senator Mark Stoops uh, this morning sent me a an email. He's a sponsor or a co-sponsor of Senate Bill 540, which is, I, I believe, the one bill in the uh, legislature that would expand Medicaid through the Affordable Care Act. Um, he he's uh, <clears throat> sent me along the fiscal note for Medicaid expansion, which estimates that amount of money coming from the federal government at 2.7 to 2.8 billion dollars a year for the first four years, uh, and it would in, it would increase the number of people. Uh, covered by Medicaid by 427,000. Um, I, I wondered, you know, under your plan and going through the Healthy Indiana plan, you know, what kind of what kind of cost will there be to expand um, expand to a new population? How many new people would be covered? Well, we're hoping that it would 
expand to that population of the uninsured adults that right now can be potentially uncovered at 25 percent of the poverty level up to a hundred percent because we know under the Affordable Care Act, hopefully at 100%, there would start to be in the exchange some of the uh, tax credits that would allow some purchasing of uh, insurance products. With respect to the uh, the state budget proposal that you filed uh, this week, the House Republicans did. Um, what is your what is the the monetary position for? health care coverage and for for expanding spending on on health care in that budget just so we have it we uh, fully fund the forecast in fiscal year 14 at the Medicaid forecast levels uh, we do imp- try to implement a cost savings program for fiscal year 15 that will reduce it by 20 million dollars from the forecast uh, but state share of Medicaid money will be at $1.99 billion just for services in fiscal year 15. Okay. Uh, we have a phone call. Um, we have a couple on the line already, but let's go first to Ann from Salisbury. Ann? Yes. I would like to ask Representative Brown how many uh, people are currently covered under the Healthy Indiana Plan. Uh, I think uh, the number is around uh, over 40,000 that we're covering uh, presently. And how does that compare to what uh, is would be covered under the Medicaid expansion? If we did the full implementation, uh, as the numbers have said, it could be 427,000. That seems to be almost 10 times what's covered under the Healthy Indiana Plan. And that's where the the cost estimates are widely divergent. We have a lot of different institutes out there doing cost analysis. The, the Family uh, in Impact Institute, the Kaiser Foundation, you know, says it potentially is only $5 million a year. But our studies that we contract with, our, our consultant, uh, a group uh, that does our Medicaid forecast, says uh, that it will be Twenty uh, million a year. Well, what I'm thinking of is not the money, but the fact that there would be approximately ten times more people of this population that would have availability of some kind of health care, and that I don't know. I just I can't put a money number on that. In you raise a point about availability of health care. I, I guess my point is the Affordable Care Act really doesn't change how we deliver other than the ACO's accountable care organization. And I know Mr. Leonard from the hospital associations on the line and can talk more uh, um, more about that. But a lot of the bill, a lot of the Affordable Care Act is just a change in financing, uh, taxing in some area, Credits in another uh, expansion of services doesn't change a lot. I'm not uh, talking about expansion of services as far as what the health care service is. I'm talking about the numbers of people that would have that available to them. My understanding of the Affordable Care Act is that hospitals will not be reimbursed for the care that they now give to people who do not have insurance because of the Good Samaritan Act. And what are hospitals going to be doing in terms of how they can respond to that and meet a community need? Um, Tim, um, Tim, let's let uh, Doug Leonard answer that since he's representing the hospital. And I will hang up now if you'd like. All right, Ann, thank you. You bet. Thank you. Well, I, I'm not. This is Doug Leonard. I'm not real sure that I, I follow all that she was trying to get to. But let me let me see if I can answer it. The um, the Affordable Care Act uh, and the coverage would mean that uh, in Indiana, uh, 427,000, as Representative Brown stated, people would be covered with uh, a Medicaid product. And in Indiana, we hope that would be through the 
HIP program or something similar to the HIP program. And so they would they would have an insurance card, and they would come to the hospital for care, and that care would be paid for um, through that insurance product. So it isn't as if we wouldn't get paid. In fact, it would be a reversal of the situation today where those people are uninsured, and when they come for their care and we're legally obligated to provide it, um, they have no way to pay for it, and we have to find other means by cost shifting to get that uh, reimbursement covered. Representative Brown, I wanted to get you a question from one of our, our live chatters on our website who, who writes, if Indiana's HIP renewal is approved, uh, have they, I assume meaning lawmakers, or would they consider phasing in eligibility over 2013 rather than waiting for 2014? Federal funding, they say, is available at the current matching rate, and they think this might ease burdens on providers by distributing the new patients over time. Uh, I think that uh, we have the HIP program actually authorized till uh, currently the way it's set up till the end of December 31st of 2013. So we're asking for extension beyond that and for to use it as a product uh, of coverage. Uh, so probably would not be any transition. I think to get it all done, uh, it would take us the, the six to eight months that we have from now to, to, to make that happen. All right. Uh, let me give our phone numbers again, 855-0811, 877-285-9348, slash noon edition is the website. Representative Brown, we've about ex- uh, ex- um, taken all of, all of the time that you have for us. So I, I wanted to give you an opportunity again to offer uh, your thoughts on, you know, what we should be doing um, in health care. Well, again, I feel very strongly, and I think uh, – we should incorporate state flexibility uh, because what works necessarily in New York or New Mexico may not work in Indiana. And also the personal responsibility and accountability. Uh, I think part of the, the problem as a provider that I have as a provider over the years is Medicaid has grown in enormity and it's cumbersome and, and hasn't really served both the clients and providers in an adequate and well-run uh, program. And if we just expand it, we create a, a bigger monolithic entity. And so it's a time where we can pause and do some implementation of change that fits for Indiana. All right. Well, we appreciate very much you being with us today. I appreciate it. Thank you for uh, allowing me to to talk for a few minutes. All right. Thanks very much. That's uh, State Representative Tim Brown. Um, we have uh, some phone callers, and Dr. Rob Stone has been uh, on the line waiting. Uh, he is the founder of Hoosiers for a Common Sense Health Plan. Uh, Rob? Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. So is, is Tim Brown gone? He is gone, yeah. So you can respond. My questions were for him. Well. Um, but I would, if he if he's hearing this and can call back, that'd be great. But you know, he raised the point of uh, well, first, really, I think kind of the speculative threat that Medicaid might be expanded and then taken away in three years. And you know, that's, that's the way the law reads. It's highly speculative that the Medicaid coverage would be pulled back in three years, or the federal support would be pulled back. Um, but the fact of Medicaid, the reality of Medicaid, is that. Uh, in, every, in Indiana, as in every state, people go on and off the Medicaid uh, rolls as the economies change and the states make these decisions. So it's, it's happened before, but I would hate to see it rolled back. But I just don't think that's really a credible threat. But the real question I was going to ask him is, you know, he, he raises the point that there are problems taking federal dollars. But um, I wanted to ask him, you know, we're still going to pay in Indiana our federal taxes, and uh, so they're going to go to other states who do the Medicaid imp- expansion. Why shouldn't we want to keep our own federal tax dollars here instead of subsidizing other states? Mm-hmm. Beth, you're shaking your head yes over there. Uh, just because this is a, an issue that's come up uh, quite a bit in the discussion among the states about that are struggling with do we expand Medicaid or do we not? And it is true that the tax structure that you know uh, individuals and uh, in states um, are subject to they'll be paying taxes that support what will be federal Medicaid assistance that will end up going to other states through the expansion. So. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that question's been raised quite a bit. 
uh, not just in Indiana, but other states that are, are facing the same question. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Rob, I'm sorry you didn't get to ask that to, to Tim Brown, but uh, Beth certainly agrees with you. Okay. Now, can I ask a quick question to Doug Lannan? <laughs> sure. Go right ahead. Okay. So, Doug, the, uh, the, re- the report that the Indiana Hospital Association released um, earlier this week has suggested that the that if uh, does this basically because of the, the federal monies that will come into state that we might add thirty thousand jobs in the state which sounds huge. Um, Governor Pence I know has made a um, uh, made it a point that he's he's all about uh, jobs in this economy. Has he made any comment on your statement? Uh, not directly back to us, uh, but I'm sure it's it's something that is taken into account in the whole equation. You know, I, I think uh, the governor has expressed a, at least a neutral position on on this, and has has in our mind stayed open. He's um, trying to take into account, I think, like other Republican governors, the the fiscal case for this, and that's what we've tried to do with our study: is uh, not focus just on the direct cost of the state, but the whole equation, which is. Uh, what happens if we say yes and the federal dollars that will flow in, the reversal of the cost shifting that occurs, and and that's an important point to us because, as I said earlier, when someone comes in without insurance um, and we are both legally and I would argue morally obligated to take care of them, then um, the loss on that uh, patient's care are cost shifted to other paying uh, patients. And last year, uh, we surveyed our hospitals, and um, 104 hospitals responded, and that was almost $3 billion in Indiana alone that was cost-shifted over. So uh, if that was reversed by um, not being something that burdens our employers that still provide insurance, and then um, that um, would you know free up employers to perhaps be you know even slightly more profitable or slightly less unprofitable in this in this lingering recession, and then the uh, sort of economic benefit that comes from that would create other um, other jobs in the healthcare system, and then you apply the traditional economic multipliers. Uh, for what that does in a community. So it it brings in uh, quite a bit of other economic activity. All right. Thank you to Dr. Rob Stone for calling in. We're going to uh, move on to our next caller, Christina from Bloomington. Hello. Uh, thank you for taking my call. <clears throat> I was um, going to ask a similar question uh, to Dr. Stone. Um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, but in addition um, to that, I think, you know, since we're going to be paying the money in taxes um, and not getting it back if we don't expand Medicaid, um, in addition to that, if we, uh, there's been a new study, a new report from the University of Nebraska Medical Center, Center for Health Policy, and um, they found that Medicaid expansion has the potential not only to cover an additional 406,000 uninsured Hoosiers, but also to generate up to $3.4 billion in new economic activity, which would support more than 30,000 jobs through, through 2020. Um, and uh, that, those jobs, of course, would generate tax revenue for the state as well. Um, and it, seem, it seems to me that what we're, what we're seeing is... Um, a rather doctrinaire um, reaction from Republicans at state level um, against the whole uh, Affordable Health Care Act and ignoring the things that they say that they support, which is cost-saving and um, generating new jobs. All right. Um, that, that study was commissioned by your association, right? It was. Um, the Indiana Hospital Association commissioned that, just as I said before, to try to try to get the whole equation on the table. And, you know, I have to say, uh, while there are, are people out there that are very, um, very biased one way or other politically, I, I have to, you know, give some accommodations to our state uh, General Assembly who are – um, looking at this uh, forthrightly, they have to be cautious about the long-term implications. And I, I think even uh, Dr. Stone, uh, his 
question, or I'm sorry, Dr. Brown, his uh, question about taking something away. Uh, it is difficult to uh, create a, a new plan and then suddenly say three years later, well, we're, we're done with this trial and we're going to take uh, insurance away from 400,000 people. So I, I have to say I understand why they're taking the cautious approach. And they did um, uh, put in and pass out of committee a bill in both the House and the Senate last week um, to move forward on consideration of it. So I, I hope, even with their caution, that they're going forward, even though the on the larger scale, uh, you know, the uh, Republicans with a large R here may have been opposed to um, the uh, so-called Obamacare bill. All right, Christina, thank you so much for your call. Uh, I want to move to one more uh, caller before we uh, take a break here. Paul is on the line from Linton. Paul, good afternoon. Hello. Um, I have a couple questions. One is, uh, do we know how many providers in the state, uh, and indeed primary care providers, are willing to take patients who have HIP? I know that there are many that will not. Then the other question I have is, does anyone know why the rule or the law for HIP requires that a person who gets the insurance has to be there for six months, has to have no insurance at all for six months before they're eligible? Um, I, I will try to respond, and I'm not an expert on every technical detail of HIP, but on the, on the latter question, when that program was created, it was clearly a program for the uninsured. And um, the, the, any insurance plan is written in a way that they want to avoid uh, people jumping on and off the plan. And so what they didn't want is for uh, people to uh, cancel or terminate their insurance and then jump on the HIP program. They, they wanted some period of time to document that they truly were. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but that, I think, is the premise uh, behind that insurance product. On the, on the first part of the question, I don't know. There may be um, a list at the state of documented uh, primary care physicians that are so-called in-network or have signed up for it. Um, I think when it was first introduced, I know I was still a hospital CEO then, and there were, um, there were physicians on the medical staff that were hesitant about it because they saw it as another Medicaid product, and, and many of them had closed their doors to uh, increasing Medicaid panels um, because of the payments under Medicaid, and they didn't understand that, that HIP actually paid a Medicare-level uh, payment. So there was some confusion about it in the beginning. Um, so I, I think more realized that later and signed up. Just just to be clear, Medicare level is higher than Medicaid level? It is. I, I will say, though, that uh, neither Medicare nor Medicaid, uh, at, at least on the hospital side, pay the total um, cost of the actual care. When I say cost, I mean the actual salaries, wages, heat and light, et cetera. I'm not saying price. So Medicare typically is paid, say, some 64 cents on the dollar of cost, and Medicaid um, substantially lower than that. Though uh, last year we put in place a new program, which has brought our hospital Medicaid payments up to Medicare levels. Mm -hmm. Beth, yeah, yeah I, I think I'd have to go back and double check this, but I think that if HIP is used as the vehicle for Medicaid expansion, which is what uh, the governor has proposed and the bill's moving through the state senate to do that as well, that that six month gap would not be a part of that. In fact, I think they're seeking for that to go away. So, right, mm -hmm. and I, I want to point out, too, when we talk about HIP, I think um, even though the governor and the legislators have said we want to use HIP for the vehicle, uh, what they've really said is we want to use elements of HIP. And there are elements of HIP that will not be um, acceptable to the federal government because it's, it's so different than uh, the Medicaid rules that have always been applied federally. So as Dr. Brown was saying, there are some elements of self-responsibility and participation in the cost of the care, et cetera, that they feel like have been successful in reducing utilization and such. So I think that's where they'll start negotiating with the federal government is these are the elements that we want to maintain, and hopefully CMS will um, negotiate something that will be um, – it will fit right for Indiana. Before we take a break, um, when I asked Representative Brown about the numbers that would be covered under HIP, and I don't think he gave me a specific answer, do you know – 
Well, if uh, currently they're um, forty thousand about forty thousand, but if HIP becomes the vehicle for this, then it would cover the whole four hundred six or four hundred twenty-seven thousand, whatever the actual estimate is. Yeah, although one thing I wasn't sure with um, Representative Brown seemed to be capping at the hundred percent right. level. Mm-hmm of the federal poverty level for HIP and then moving people beyond that into the exchanges, which is actually sounds like it's comparable to what is being reported out of Wisconsin now. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, what is reflected in the governor's proposal to CMS was covering up through 138 percent of the poverty level, which would get to the numbers that uh, Doug is talking about. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of a disconnect there. I'm not sure. And my, under- out. my understanding is that CMS originally uh, was going to permit states to uh, go up to just 100 percent level, but then they closed that and said, no, we want everybody up to the 138 percent level. So I mm-hmm. believe that's where that stands. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a short break. Afterward, Beth, want to talk a little bit more about what's going on in the rest of the country and, and about these exchanges a little bit. I think people might be a little confused about, about what those are all about. So you're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading our podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. We're talking about uh, whether Indiana should expand Medicaid uh, coverage today. Stan Jastrzewski is my co-host today, and we have two guests with us in the studio, uh, Indiana Hospital Association President Doug Leonard and Beth Kate, who's a professor at the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, uh, our Twitter handle is at noon edition. Uh, Beth, you do studying of how the states and the federal government interact. And I wondered, the idea was brought up earlier of the, the state is, of course, going to pay its taxes into the federal government. And the question then becomes, what do we get back for paying mm-hmm. those in? And so when you're talking about how or whether a state should buy into a program like this, how do you think the calculus should go in the minds of state lawmakers and the governor who are deciding whether they're getting enough return on their investment to buy into a program like this or whether, as our caller suggested, we are essentially giving the federal government the money and then it's going to the other states who don't want to be in this program? Yeah, well, I think that state lawmakers are taking that into account. It's funny, when the Supreme Court was deciding the Affordable Care Act case and taking a look at the Medicaid expansion provisions, one of the comments that was made um, by justices who, who agreed that the Medicaid expansion was uh, was coercive was saying, look, you know, one of the things that's going to push states, if really all of their Medicaid funding is at risk, if they don't expand, is this notion that they're paying into a system Already, you know, even if you tell them, well, now you can choose whether to expand or not without risking all your Medicaid funding, won't they still want to go in because they'll fear that they'll be paying into a system they won't get benefit back out of? But, I mean, some some Medicaid dollars will continue to flow back to the state, obviously, because there will continue to be a Medicaid-covered population even without the expansion. Um, and then there's some suggestion, you know, HHS said uh, back in December that it would uh, consider continuing a match for an expanded population beyond the traditional Medicaid population, but below that 133%, 138% of the federal poverty level that is otherwise called for in the Affordable Care Act. So even that could then provide some more 
federal Medicaid dollars if a state like apparently Wisconsin is choosing to do is going to expand, but not up to the full expansion. Um, so lawmakers will have to take all of that into account in doing a calculus about, you know, are we getting back what we give in? And this is this question, I think, has been part of an ongoing heightened debate about federalism and federal state relations uh, in a number of ways, not just healthcare, for some time now. So, and it's and it's difficult, as Doug was saying before. It's really kind of multifaceted because you don't even look at just the tax dollars in and how do you isolate the benefits coming out, but what are all of the other kind of expanding potential economic impacts? And we were talking to Dr. Orenlicker a few weeks ago. He brought up what he referred to as the woodwork effect, Mm -hmm. which is maybe we don't understand the full effect of this. And I wonder, uh, and Doug, I'll pose this to you, I wonder if uh, Representative Brown and the folks who are writing the state budget are believing that the woodwork effect is going to be so serious that whatever we see as the monetary possibilities for what this is going to cost the state, uh, even if you were to take into account the federal government paying 100 percent of the cost for the next three years, years four and beyond, where the feds ostensibly are going to pay up to 90 percent of the cost, still the state could find more and more people to be on on Medicaid and that could be a, a real financial burden, could it not? Right. The so-called woodwork effect is that there are uh, approximately 60,000 Hoosiers out there now who are qualified for current Medicaid but have not signed up. And uh, those people are um, – the, the idea is that when we start making this uh, effort to sign up Hoosiers for this new uh, Medicaid product, that uh, they will come out of the woodwork. That's a terrible analogy, but they'll come out of the woodwork and um, they'll suddenly sign up for current Medicaid. And it's important to understand that they will not be eligible for the new Medicaid where the federal government pays 100 percent of that population. They'll be eligible for our current Medicaid, where the federal government pays two-thirds. So the state will increase their cost um, for that population. And it's also important to note, and I I think this is something that often isn't mentioned, is that the mandate in the law, which was upheld, um, compels the state to cover those 60,000 people anyway, whether we take that new population or not. So that cost is there with or without this new population. Even if they're not accessing the services. Um, right. Um, so now uh, some of those people, I mean, there's a question why they haven't signed up yet. And so I imagine uh, some of those people just haven't incurred a need for health care. And, and when I was a hospital administrator, uh, what would happen is someone would show up and they came to the emergency room or something and and we found out that they would qualify for Medicaid and we assisted them in getting signed up for Medicaid. So, you know, prior to that, they hadn't signed up because they hadn't needed it. So many of them are probably in that condition and they may still be that way after, you know, this whole uh, thing gets sorted out. So, um, but nonetheless, that they are, they're going to be there and they're going to sign up uh, one way or the other and the state is still <coughs> responsible for them. So I'm not sure that that impact is totally because uh, or totally affected by the decision to take on this new population. Mm-hmm. All right. Our phone numbers again, 855-0811, And you can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. You know, this is a really complicated issue for a lot of people, and hopefully we're making it uh, reasonably simple for folks to understand. Beth, I wanted to turn to you and and just ask about this uh, relationship between the Affordable Care Act, the federal government, mm-hmm. and the Healthy Indiana Plan. What what Indiana, you know, what what it can do and what it can't do going forward. Sure. Um, well, I think you know. Again, going back to the Supreme Court's decision this past summer, um, I think. In the discussion of the Medicaid expansion, what you saw, and in the decision overall, including the individual mandate, certainly was an emphasis by um, a majority of justices on the court that there is a a still meaningful uh, concept of federalism. And what that means is that in the Medicaid expansion context, and there you had seven justices um, saying that it's coercive for the federal government to say, we will put at risk all of your Medicaid funding if you don't agree to the expansion that the federal law sets out. Um, that it's coercive because it doesn't give states a real opportunity to make a choice. Um, that the way Chief Justice Roberts put it was it's a gun to the state's head. 
and underscoring that state, this, this program was supposed to be a federal state cooperative program with flexibility for states to make a real decision about how it might um, operate. And so then that you know, against that backdrop is sort of it's sort of animating this ongoing discussion. Okay, what do you do now? And for a long time, Medicaid has had the ability to grant waivers to states to change things about how they operate Medicaid that differ from the the you know four corners of the usual federal rules. And Indiana's Healthy Indiana program has operated under a waiver since two thousand seven, starting two thousand eight, and so now it's seeking. Another expansion of that, I think, for three years. Uh, and as Doug mentioned, um, there are some controversial aspects for CMS, the unit of HHS that administers Medicaid, um, as to whether this this is the appropriate way to try to hit a bigger population with a Medicaid product. I think particularly the $160 minimum contribution that an individual would have to make into those power accounts that Representative Brown was talking about, that has been something that has been a, a bit of a sticking point. And, and cost sharing with recipients generally has been an area where waivers have been more controversial uh, for granting out of the federal government to the states. Um, and so this issue of, on the one hand, does requiring someone to pay into an account contribute some minimum amount, subject to a cap based on percent of income, uh, does that get them to engage with their health care more um, you know, sort of assertively and go into preventive care more? Does it keep them out of the emergency room when they don't need to be? Does it just kind of make them more responsible consumers of health care? Because they have, quote, unquote, skin in the game. You see this phrase all over the place, including in the waiver request. Um, or, or does it not? Does it actually deter people from trying to access health care services. So that right now is one of the um, kind of state-federal tug-of-wars that's going on, I think, over you know how Indiana will go forward and try to make its decision. But states are kind of struggling with, you know, how do we – how do we now exercise some choice? We've got some choice now because, you know, the, the outcome of the Supreme Court's decision was we get to choose whether to expand our population now under Medicaid or not. If we don't, what are we going to do with all these other people mm -hmm. who don't have insurance? How's that going to be funded? And so on. So. Can I add a point to that? And then Chairman Brown brought it up and then Beth, um, I think, expanded it nicely. But the, an important factor here is that question of flexibility and design. And the state very much desires that um, so that the current Medicaid program and then this new program we're taking on, um, that the state has some control over design features of it so that they can design it so that um, that it, uh, it compels people or encourages people to, to utilize care um, more efficiently. But I'd, I'd like to add to that that if you, if you really look through the, um, the ACA, the law, the health reform law, in, in one sense it's a catalog of experiments to move us away from the way health care has been paid traditionally for the last 50 years. And right now, uh, health care is paid on a, on a volume-like basis that, you know, when I was running the hospital, uh, the more lab tests we did, the more surgeries we did, the more machines we bought, uh, you know, that was the way the incentive system was designed. That's why you see billboards up and down the highway, and that's why you're motivated to get more equipment to do more surgeries, et cetera, bring more patients in. Um, that's the way the incentive system is designed. And, and so there's a big movement um, to move towards a volume-based or a value-based uh, model and a, a population-based model of care. And that's uh, the accountable care organizations you're seeing in other bundled payments. So I think uh, the state uh, would also like and the feds should be encouraging the state's ability to move in that direction with um, these big populations of care too. I wonder if either of you think there's a logic to this patchwork pattern of states having their own plans and the federal government offering waivers for things like the Healthy Indiana Plan because what it would seem is if you are going to use those as a way to better serve your populations, then the lawmakers, for instance, who are devising those plans have to have some insight into perhaps into some sort of quirk of the population of their populations uh, to say, ah, we understand that we have no – we have more, for instance, in, in Florida, you might have more elderly people and so you might need more services that cater to the elderly. Um, so in Indiana, 
here smack in the middle of the country, I would perceive us to be a relatively normal state in terms of having a wide range of issues that people need covered. Uh, so back to the original question, is there logic to having each state have its own solution? Yeah, if I can jump in on that, I mean, the the waivers that states have sought in this regard are called research and demonstration waivers under the federal law. And what they really are intended to do is to say, look, we think we can do it better and do it better either for our own population because of the idiosyncrasies of the population that you're um, discussing, Stan, or because, and this is a classic element of this, again, federalist relationship, the states as laboratories, laboratories for experimentation that might get picked up and used fruitfully on a national scale. And so, um, you know, to some extent, uh, the states in going forward and saying, well, we want to try it out this way, you know, they also have to come back and show how's it working, you know, and now not only do they have to show that to CMS, but thanks to some changes in the regs uh, that came into being about a year ago, they have to make it public. So the data and the experience that states gain under these different ways of proceeding uh, under the waivers are things that now the public can view and comment on and see whether or not, you know, it, it does seem to be working or whether it should be picked up for another state. Uh, so there, there is that kind of sense that you could both try to work with your idiosyncrasies in your own population, but you might actually be a lab for the rest of the country. Is there enough of a benchmarking procedure in here real quick before we get back to our callers? Is, is there enough of the, the accountability aspect of this? Um, I, well, I think so. As, as Beth said uh, so well, I think it, it, experimentation is a good thing because we have a – we don't have a system that was ever designed. I mean it, it is evolving and being changed every day and it, it is um, – it's not a system that you can organize so – tightly like you can in a manufacturing process where you're making the same device over and over. Every every patient is a custom order, you know, with different um, ability to tolerate pain, different education, different, you know, organic um, structure. So um, I think the, the best we can do is to experiment and then put metrics in. For example, the CMS, the Medicare program, has more than 200 uh, measures now on hospital outcomes and hospital performance that are publicly available. Ten years ago, they had almost none. Um, so the same every day, more and more metrics on the way systems work. So little by little, it's tightening up, so there's less variation. Um, there's an implementation of more that we've learned to standardize as much as possible. So I think we're, we're getting there. Um, but it's it's very much from experimenting and learning and taking evidence-based best practices and implementing them. I've heard Dr. Rob Stone say many times, our, our system isn't broken because we have no system. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> many times. All right, we have a couple of phone calls. Let's go to John first. John? Hi. Uh, there was a guest column published in the Herald Times a few weeks ago by Milton Fisk that suggested, I think, that a core motive for the creation of HIP to begin with was to channel public money to private companies, uh, privatizing profit and uh, making the risk uh, public. Uh, when you take a look at the history of HIP, when you look at the statements of its uh, proponents, and when you look at the lobbyists on the ground right now, is there a reason to believe that indeed that's a core motive? All right, thanks, John. And I think uh, I, I read that column, and I think it characterized very. You know, I, I don't particularly feel qualified to yeah. respond to that. Yeah, I didn't read the column, and, and I don't I know what either. the theory is or where the the private. Mm -hmm. parties are that would be getting the money out of it. I think, yeah, I think the theory was that, that through HIP, there are private insurers that are involved solely, I, I believe. But maybe John will call back and expand yeah, there, on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, even in this quest to try to get coverage, there are private insurance companies that are um, operating managed care plans that are certainly hungering to try to uh, be available to cover through managed care plans as new Medicaid population so they see a business opportunity. All right, let's go to Nancy next. Nancy? Hi. Um, when you're discussing uh, who's uh, eligible mm -hmm. for Medicaid and then 
uh, Medicaid expansion, instead of saying 100% of the poverty level and 138% of the poverty level, could you um, actually use the um, actual dollars? I think uh, we might all be shocked at how uh, how little money people uh, earn in order to and before they uh, earn out of Medicaid. That's an excellent question. I walked out without those numbers today. I'm looking at my binder. Do you I, I've that? got a note about the federal federal poverty limit for a single adult being about eleven thousand one hundred seventy dollars, or twenty three thousand for a family of four. It's quite low. Yeah. I mean, there's no, no question about it. Yeah, you have. I, I think people don't realize you have to be very dar- darn poor to qualify. Uh, for this insurance, so it's it's not a giveaway, mm-hmm. and that is a very good point. All right, thanks, Nancy. Thank you. Uh huh. Thanks a lot. Our phone numbers eight five five zero eight one one or eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, or you can go to wfiu dot org slash noon edition, which is our website. If you uh, want to have a chat. One one comment, just to jump back in on the previous question about the column, and I had not read the column, but I, certainly one question that has floated around the Affordable Care Act uh, sort of mechanism altogether is keeping private insurers as a big part of that. In fact, one of the um, big conundrums, again, I keep going back to the Supreme Court, sorry, that's my bailiwick, mm-hmm. but, um, but talking about uh, the effort to create a mechanism where pri- private insurance is operating through the exchanges and so mm-hmm. on, as opposed to simply doing a tax scheme like Social Security, is how a lot of the challenges that came about to, you know, provisions like the individual, individual mandate and so on, those came mm-hmm. about. So private insurance is in that mix sort of throughout. It's, it's not just HIP. In other words, that's actually right. kind of a key feature of the Affordable Care Act. Before I go to our, our next two callers, I did want to follow up on, on that, on the exchanges, because uh, I think, Doug, you said the the state is trying to to have control uh, and design you know its own features so it has control over the Medicaid expansion. Yet you know we see Indiana saying with the exchanges we're just going to let the federal government do it. it. That seems sort of like in conflict. We'll let the feds do this, but not this. And I don't know if if Beth has been a student of the exchanges. She may know more technically about what I do. But the you know the general idea is that the um, the ACA allowed three options for the states. They could even they could either design their own, they could do a sort of a hybrid with the feds, or they could say let the federal government do it. I know Governor Pence had concerns about what financial burden there would be on the state in the long run if we designed our own, and so he opted to say no, let the state no, let the feds do it. And many states have gone that way. And I, you know, frankly, I'm not sure. Um, if there's a big advantage for the state to do it themselves because they're all going to have to operate in a similar fashion. I had sort of the same reaction. I'm not an expert on the uh, different approaches that the states that have opted to run their own exchanges uh, are pursuing and what benefits they might see from that. But um, I think I've probably worked enough in my prior days with different um, information technology uh, organizations trying to find common ground over shared activities, which is, you know, the, the exchanges are going to operate for access to insurance largely online. And I'm not sure I in- intuitively see a huge benefit to the state taking on the full operation, but I, I have not studied it in detail. Um, it seems as though with the three options that Doug was just outlining, there there was a, a desire for states who are closer to their own internal populations to have some, uh, you know, activity in trying to assist people to products that they might be interested in through the exchange. And so you could, you know, you see these opportunities to cooperate with the feds, even if they run the exchange and so on. But um, but I do think I think today right is the deadline for states to notify right. whether they want to do a cooperative um, based uh, approach and I, I think states are some states are still the jury's out and they haven't decided although they'll decide by five o'clock today um, and a few have decided to run them and uh, a number have not and. And can you just summarize the exchanges for me? I mean, it's an opportunity for people to go online and find an insurance. The the best analogy I've seen is if you buy your travel 
um, airline tickets and such through Travelocity or Orbitz. That's effectively a marketplace that was created online for travel. And um, so you can imagine a marketplace created online to buy your health insurance. And you'd have to qualify, and it would be people at certain income levels or small groups, and there would be tax credits and others that support uh, certain people that qualify for that. But you could go on and tailor your purchase. You know, if I wanted this amount of deductible or I wanted to cover my family or I wanted pregnancy coverage, et cetera. So you could tailor it to buy your insurance. And some, you know, like I, you know, we are a small employer. We may um, look at that and say, well, it would be easier if we uh, provided the amount we spend today on insurance to our, each of our employees and let them tailor their purchase themselves instead of us selecting a plan for them. Um, and I know employers will go through that and individuals will qualify. I don't, Beth, would mm-hmm. you depict it any differently? No, no, I think that's quite a good analogy, actually. Okay. We have one more call we're going to try to get to. Tom? Uh, yes. Go right ahead. Okay. If uh, Indiana chooses not to take federal funds, and they want to add 360,000 people to the rows of HIP or whatever insurance they plan they want to provide. How are they going to fund this? Are they going to raise our taxes in order to take care of this additional cost? I, I don't think that option that you described is being considered. If they don't, if they don't take the federal funds, then they won't cover um, those 406,000 people. They will remain uninsured. Yeah, the uh, I read through the submission to CMS from the governor's office, and if the um, the proposal to approve HIP as that vehicle, or the portions of HIP that are being proposed as the vehicle for Medicaid expansion, um, doesn't get approved, what that says it, is the program will simply be dismantled. Mm-hmm. So, so right now, the, the the governor's proposal and the proposal is that we would expand Medicaid, but but do it through the HIP program. Right. So, the federal funds would still. Right, come, come in exactly. Come in. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you. All right, Tom. Thanks a lot. Well, we have just a, about a, a minute to go uh, in the program. Beth, uh, what what exactly is happening? Or not exactly, but <laughs> in general, what's happening around point the country? Are, are people and we got about a minute? So. Yeah. Uh, just quickly, I mean, you know, some there's been a lot of news about some um, states uh, with Republican governors that were being watched closely. Are they going to expand Medicaid? Are they not? In Arizona, Ohio, Michigan, they're, uh, they had signaled that they were going to go ahead and expand the population, although the legislatures in those states would still need to act, as I understand it. Um, and there have been just, you know, uh, kind of differing views on this throughout the country. So some states got in early and actually asked to expand their populations, Medicaid populations, which they were allowed to do under the uh, Affordable Care Act starting before January 1st, 2014. And some have already gone down that road. And then others have continued to signal that they're not going to do it. Um, and similarly with the exchanges, as we were talking about before, um, states have uh, have just taken different approaches. So it's a bit all over the map, okay. and the federal government's trying to figure out what to do next. All right. Well, we're, thank you for that. We're out of time, sure. so I want to thank Beth Kate and uh, Doug Leonard for being here, and also State Representative Tim Brown, who joined us earlier. For Stan Jastrzewski, uh, producers Gretchen Frazee and Julie Raw, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.